The things these streets have seen, like legends, half man, half machine, who head up north to go down in history. But here in the Ville, nothing comes for free. Because here, there's no should. These streets reveal what's really under the hood. If these streets could talk, they wouldn't. They'd roar. They've seen the unforgettable, and they just want more. NTI Townsville 500. Book now at Ticketek. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. G'day everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Great to be with you again for another episode of the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco. Now, just quickly, speaking of Repco, Repco Supercars Weekly yesterday, but this weekend, Sydney Round, I said that it's hard tyres. What a brain melt. I don't know what I was talking about or what I was thinking. Uh, soft tyre weekend this weekend for the supercars in Sydney. Anyway, on to this pod, and it's a really exciting one, really great chat. I thoroughly enjoyed this one. John Smales was in great form. Of course, he's a veteran of uh, the motorsport and motoring media industry. We chatted primarily about his new book, Formula One, The Australian and New Zealand Story. It documents not just the Aussies and Kiwis to race Formula One, uh, but those who've been in and around the surrounds, whether it's designers, engineers, people who drove Formula One cars but never raced in Formula One. Uh, It opens the door to a whole pile of stories that haven't been told before. So we talk about the book and all of the topics that flow of Aussies and Kiwis in Formula One, but we got so much other chat in here. We talked about his long career in the industry, and there's some really, really funny stories. Two that really stand out. The time that he was hip and shouldered by Kimi Raikkonen, true story, it happened, and getting told where to go in a four-letter word by Alan Moffat on live television back in the day. It's a cracking story. Both of them are. Uh, He's a great storyteller and he's a great guy who is so passionate about uh, everything that he does. So here we go. Buckle up. Time to start John Smales on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. John Smales, V8 Sleuth podcast. Great to have you with me, mate. Um, Exciting times. You've got another book out. Um, Formula One, we're focusing on Australians and Kiwis. But firstly, g'day, mate. Welcome along. It's it's good to chat. It's a pleasure to be with the next generation of people who talk about motor racing. Thank you. <laughs> mate, you've, you've been punching out these books the last few years. You've, been, you've done an Alan Moffat one. You've done uh, Australians and Kiwis at the Indy 500. There was London to Sydney. Um, there was a Bathurst book. There's been um, plenty going on in the last few years. But you, you knew he is a cracker. I'm only halfway through, I must admit. It's, um, there, there's plenty to keep entertained. But... Why did you do a Formula One book that's Australians and New Zealanders? Was this a way to do Formula One in a book in a way that nobody else has done it before? The answer to your question is exactly that, yes. But no one has done it before. And all my motorsport life, you get into pub conversations or just discussions with guys, especially discussions with guys driving home from motorized meetings, and everyone's got an opinion on who drove in Formula One, who did this, who did that, and no one, to my knowledge, had ever properly defined who the Formula One drivers from Australia and New Zealand are 
and who the aspirants were as well, because as well as there being 15 Australians and nine New Zealanders, there were also 13 people who either drove in those old non-championship Formula One races that used to happen in Britain in the 1970s, or people who tested in Formula One and didn't take it any further. So I thought, why not put them all together, do a heap of research to discover that I was right, and put out this book. So I've got my fingers crossed right now that I haven't missed anyone. <laughs> Hopefully there's no abusive emails or phone calls coming from someone who once sat in a Formula One car who once lived in Australia for a year of their life but has lived somewhere else or something strange along those lines. But I reckon, from what I've seen, I reckon you've got them covered. I reckon you're pretty safe there, John. I reckon, you, I reckon you're right. But why did you have to put the Kiwis in? Couldn't we just kick them out and let them have their own book? Couldn't you have kept it to the Aussies? We're being kind to the Kiwis. There's only nine after all. And, and honestly, when you contemplate it, the, the genesis of motorsport, our down-under motorsport entering Formula One was as much about Bruce McLaren as it was, to a degree, about Jack Rabham. And because Jack took Bruce to England with him, effectively. And you couldn't really ignore them because they were a very, very important part of the down-under mix. So that's a serious answer to, to, to a flippant question, I, I suppose. <laughs> uh, the other answer to your question is, of course, that they're mad keen for my motorsport and they'll sell a heap of books over there. So <laughs> that's not bad either. It's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. When you analyse, obviously, in Australia, when we think Formula One, it's Jack, it's AJ, Weber and Ricardo are kind of the four names of the generations. Obviously, two of them world champions, Weber a winner of multiple races and Dan, the current, you know, the current line out there for McLaren. When you compare New Zealand and Australia, country size, what they've achieved... The, the Denny Holmes, the Chris Amons, all those sorts of guys, Bruce McLarens, do you reckon pound for pound they've punched bigger and better in Formula One than Australia? Good question. I reckon they've done about as well. I mean, at the moment, if you have a look at the, the stats, like I hate quoting stats because, you know, you can either use them for or against, but, uh, but Australia is the seventh most successful in terms of results Formula One nation in the world, and New Zealand is the 12th most successful. So when you come down to it, if you then allied that against how many, how many people come from each country, uh, pound for pound, New Zealand's done better. Mm. Yeah, they, they punch okay. We give them a hard time, but over the journey they've, they've, um, they've delivered in not just Formula One, but in all sorts of other motorsport as well. I was really interested too, for those who haven't got a copy of this book yet, you can buy it now. It's on sale from our uh, V8 Sleuth online bookshop, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. I flipped open the covers and I started my way into this book and I fully, you, you gave us something that I didn't expect at the front. I was expecting the early non, uh, I was expecting Tony Gaze and, and, and the early stuff, but we got the current. We got Oscar Piastri right at the front of this book, and I thought that was a really interesting way to play. And then you go chronologically over the the years and the groups of people, and the it's not just about drivers too; it's about the people who are off track. It's the the likes of Sam Michael and Chris Dyer, and so many of these people who've been involved in Formula One from other angles and other um, perspectives outside the cockpit. Why did you start with the now? Because I opened it and it took me completely by surprise. I'm a news journal, and and for me. News is what it's all about. Oscar Piastri 
is the next big news in Australian motorsport, especially in Australian Formula One motorsport. Uh, and logically, you always lead with the news. So to me, uh, Oscar at the end of this year is most likely, fingers crossed, to be uh, World Formula Two champion. Uh, and last year he was World Formula Three champion. So logically in 2022, if Fernando Alonso wasn't the cork in the bottle at uh, Alpine Racing, uh, Oscar should be stepping up to Formula One at the age of 21 with a dream run through Formula Two, Formula Three, now Formula One. So who else to lead with but Oscar? But go one step further than that, just to be able to get into the young bloke's head now before you've got to go through the, the PR cluster to get the half hour of interview opportunity uh, was particularly important to me. You know, I got to speak to Oscar Piastri when he still was able to talk in his own language and, 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 and speak without the interruption of corporate civility. And to me, that was particularly important. I mean, for me, this book may well be the last time you read the real Oscar Piastri. Mm, I know that sounds cynical. I know that sounds cynical. But, but the truth is that sports people these days at, at elite level uh, are contained and monitored and manipulated. And to me, to be able to get to the Oscars of this world before hopefully that happens to them, I know that sounds counterproductive, but at some stage to be successful, he's going to have to, to walk that route. So to be able to get to him now well, it was a real plus. Do you think he? you just said about Fernando Alonso being the cork in the bottle? He's in an interesting time, Oscar. I'd love your take on this because he's, as you said, he's ticked the boxes. He's won everything he's gone in and all the things he needs to tick the boxes on, he's done. But it's kind of like he's hit the glass ceiling because Alonso's there, uh, Esteban Ocon's there, and, of course, won a race this year. Uh, there's not really any other seats where we've seen with drivers in the past they can be farmed out and placed by their manufacturers or the people who are uh, they're contracted to. But it's looking like none of those things might not be possible here. So where do you, where does he go? What can he do? Is this a dangerous time when it should be a glorious time for him? Yeah, and it goes one step deeper as well. He may well win the Formula 2 championship this year, but he has a an Alpa, Alpine uh, Drivers' Academy team member in Guangzhou who carries the weight of China. Um, carries so much corporate weight, carries so much money that, and has great ability, as you well know. I mean, the, the guy's a serious talent. Um, so Oscar's not only fighting for the seat above, but he's fighting with the seat alongside. So it's coming to add him from every angle. But I guess that's what Formula One's all about. I mean, you don't rise to Formula One uh, without having to fight your way real hard to get there. In terms of whether... Alpine should put aside a twice-world champion in favour of a 21-year-old Australian. Gee, that's a tough call, isn't it? Especially when it's Renault, which means that they're a manufacturer, which means that the, the name Fernando Alonso probably sells more Renaults in Spain than Oscar Piastri will sell in Australia. Um, so it's a, it, it, it's, a tough, it, it's a tough commercial call to make as well. But for me, if I'm... Simply talking as a sportsman, surely Fernando 
recognises that he had his day. He did very, very well. And it's time to move on now and own the UCI cycling team he's always wanted to own and do something else in his life rather than clinging to the hope that maybe he'll be a world champion again. It'd be really nice to see him mentor Oscar rather than be the uh, the road bump in Oscar's career. Mm. There's no guaranteed pathway to getting there, whether you don't win much or you win a lot. As the book shows, there's some amazing stories of people who uh, didn't make it, who you know, we, a lot of people at the time probably thought would make it or took the wrong decision, went the wrong pathway. That's just the the nature of the beast. What did you learn in this book, mate, that you didn't know beforehand? Were there any things that made you rock you back on your heels and think, oh, that's a good one? Wow. You know, being able to chat to some of these people, you, you, you've chatted with a lot of them over the journey and your, your roles over the years, but when it's focused on a specific project like this, was it time to talk about some things that you hadn't asked before that you got a, oh, that's an interesting one in terms of response? Well, well for a start, without being at all boastful, seriously, Someone asked me the other day, how many of these guys did you really know? And I worked out that of the 24 racing drivers who faced the starters' lights in Formula One, I've actually known and interviewed 20 of them. And the guys I hadn't interviewed were kind of the, the, the lesser lights anyway. When I say lesser lights, don't get me wrong. But I, I didn't know, for example, Tony Shelley. And I, I've, I've never spoken to Mike Thackwell. Uh, so those guys know, but... The, the, the good guys, I've, I've really had the opportunity to speak to a lot of them and to to look at their careers while their careers were happening, which sort of, I guess, marks my era, doesn't it, when you think about it. Um, interestingly, it wasn't the Formula One guys that really rocked me on my heels. It was a gal called Joan Richmond who in 1931 while it became fifth in the Australian Grand Prix Philip Island, and then drove overland to England, came 17th in the Monte Carlo rally when she arrived there, and then became the only woman ever to win the Brooklyn's 1000, co-driving or driving in partnership uh, with, uh, uh, with Elsie, Elsie, whoever. Uh, and uh, she was a genius, and Australia doesn't know about her. That, mm. that really shocked me. That, that I thought I knew motorsport, you know, and I, yeah, as much as anyone knows motorsport, but I thought I knew a bit about it. But, but all of a sudden, here's Joan, and she's, she's gold. She's a huge find. I'm putting her up for, uh, uh, for the Motorsport Hall of Fame uh, because I think she, she absolutely deserves to be there. So that was, that was one thing uh, that I learned. Um, I guess it was opening my notebooks after that because I've, a bit like your mate Crompton I've, uh, and my mate Crompton, I've, uh, I've kept notebooks over the years and it was really interesting to go back over a few of, a few of the old notes and remind myself of things that people have told me. I mean, Frank Gardner, you know, Curly Gardner, the, the, the man with the one-liners, was uh, a real revelation. I asked him way back then why he hadn't persevered with his Formula One career because he was very good. David Hobbs, in fact, when I was writing this book, told me that he believed that Frank Gardner was every bit as good as Denny Holm and therefore should logically have been in the, the second Brabham seat in 1967, except Jack wouldn't pay him enough, so Frank moved on when Denny was, was available at the time. But uh, Frank said to me, 
that he raced against Jim Clark. And and he would race wheel to wheel with Jim Clark, except on any lap, Jim would pull out an inch here and an inch there. And Frank couldn't work out how it happened. And Jim couldn't work out how it happened. He thought everyone should be on his bikes. And Frank said, for him, that was the deciding point when he knew that at his very best, he was still giving away 15ths of a second per corner to another talent. He knew that he was never going to be world champion. Wasn't that interesting? Mm. It, was, it was little things like that, that that really made it for me. I mean, the Chris Amon story, for example. I had the joy of sitting with Chris uh, for quite a while, actually, but on one day especially at the now Circuit Amon in the North Island of New Zealand, uh, where Chris kind of opened up to me about his career and uh, almost, I have to say, the love that Enzo Ferrari had for Chris and vice versa. Okay, call it respect, but it was more than respect. There was there was a deep, deep-rooted uh, commitment from the two of them to each other. And Enzo's attempt to keep Chris in the fold and what Enzo wrote about Chris when Chris ultimately pulled the pin on motorsport and returned to Australia and he said, into New Zealand rather, and he said, in his new life, his family, his children, I wonder what they will think when he tells them how close he was to being one of the greats. Mm. Takes your breath away, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. That's big ticket, isn't it? That's big I asked him on how he felt about that. He said, no, it's what I did at the time because Chris, you know, made every wrong move known to humankind in his life. <laughs> and so he figured this was just another one. And he, he seemed to be comfortable with that. But I think deep down, even when he was saying it to me, he was lighting another one of the perpetual cigarettes he, he smoked and he was, he, was, he was kind of grinding down on the, on the filter tip, I think, when he said it. Because I think he knew that if he'd stayed with Ferrari back then in the late 60s, he probably would have come good. Anyway. Mm. Mm. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Did yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the nature of it, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very much the, the nature of it. Supercars in Sydney, racing all weekend long, shifting from day into dusk into darkness. Lights on, because in Sydney, we ignite the night. We are go to light up our Sydney sky. You don't want to miss this. Panasonic Air Conditioning Sydney Super Night, 19 to 21 July. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars, unforgettable. Tell me, mate, about the, the non-drivers, those on the the outside, the guys in you know, from officials, from um, you know, we've seen engineers, and I, I love the story of Chris Dyer because he's he's now with Alpine. He was with Ferrari for a long time in the Schumacher era and with Raikkonen. Um, of course, he started with. Um, arrows in Formula One, which was the, the the jumping bridge connected to HRT here with Tom Walkinshaw Racing and Craig Lowndes. And he's, he's a Bendigo boy. Now, I think he went to uni in Ballarat from my memory. So he's country Victorian and he's gone all the yeah. way through to the to the top of the sport. So there's so many more stories. And I'd love to get him on the pod one day because uh, I think sometimes people forget about those who aren't steering and pressing pedals of how Australians and Kiwis have achieved things in Formula One, not just inside the cars as well. Makes you realise how old you are because the first thing Chris said to me when I spoke to him on the telephone thanks to COVID 
Uh, I should have been traveling the world doing this book instead of that I did it by telephone. Um, uh, the first thing Chris said to me was that he was a mad keen fan of Wayne Gardner. So, yeah, and to me, Wayne Gardner's a contemporary. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, yeah, uh, he was after me. So uh, Chris grew up uh, enjoying uh, motorcycle racing more than he did cars, but was a, an engineer ultimately, engineered the uh, uh, the 19, get me right, 1996 Craig Lowndes, Australian Touring Car Championship winning car, um, and then Craig was given the opportunity by Walkinshaw to go off and drive Formula 3000 uh, with Helmut Marko, <laughs> Poison Chalice. And uh, um, uh, Chris, in the meantime, was given the opportunity to join Walkinshaw with Arrows in the UK. So Walk and Tom, Snappy Tom, gave both of them opportunity over there. Of the two of them, arguably, Chris was the one who really took advantage of that opportunity and turned it into a, into a career. No disrespect to Craig. Um, but, uh, again, one of the, the, the light bulb moments in this book was to talk to Chris uh, about that mem- memorable, but for him, yeah, admirably forgettable time in Abu Dhabi in, nine, sorry, 2010 when uh, uh, Vettel snuck away with the championship and Alonso and Weber got themselves stuck in seventh and eighth position on a call ultimately that uh, that Ferrari made to mark Weber, that is to uh, match race Weber. So when Weber came to the pits, they called Alonso in to match race Weber and they match raced the wrong Red Bull. The other Red Bull had uh, the clear space and went on to win the race and win the championship that year. As Mark Webber said, the only time Sebastian Vettel led the championship on points was when he crossed the line in the final race. Should have been Webber's title. Anyway, so uh, here's Dyer uh, in charge of the pit pod. Ultimately, the buck stopped with him. He said 30 seconds after Alonso left the pits, match racing Webber, he knew they'd made the wrong decision because both Webber and Alonso got caught in traffic. And he said at the end of that race, all he wanted to do was find somewhere to hide. He was just in disgrace. He just felt so bad. He thought the only place he can go is into Domenicali's private office because he knew Domenicali wouldn't be there. So he went into the office only to find uh, Piero Ferrari and Montezemola, both in the office, both annoyed, and he walked straight into the lion's den. And, of course, within two weeks, Chris was gone from Ferrari. Uh, such, a, such a terrible shame. He went on to do other things. He did an MBA. Uh, joined Alpine, worked for BMW in touring cars for a while, and joined Alpine where he's now a desk jockey but a very, very well-credentialed one and very, very high in the echelon. Uh, but, again, it was just such a privilege, privilege to talk to a bloke like Chris who I'd known back in the day and hadn't seen him since he was on the pit wall at, uh, uh, at Albert Park in the, uh, in the late uh, 2000s. I hadn't seen him since then. Just to be able to talk to him and have him talk honestly, forthrightly, and with a degree of uh, passion 
about that day was a real privilege. I really appreciated him opening up to me. Yeah, it's great. Great story. Tell me too, mate, you and I have worked together in the past at the Grand Prix at Albert Park with the, the big screen TV coverage that the fans at the track get to see and hear the action of the support races and the F1 cars and all the, the bits and pieces in between. You're going to have to correct my memory if I'm wrong here. But do I remember rightly that you used to make one of your passions every time to get the interviews with the Formula One drivers when they clearly didn't want to talk, when they'd done the the driver's parades and, you know, some of them were pretty good with their chat. Others were very bad with wanting to chat. (laughs) Kimmy's the worst. Do I remember rightly that one day Kimmy half gave you a hip and shoulder in the pit lane to get you and your microphone away from him? Or am I thinking of someone else or getting it wrong? I swear that happened to you. Yeah, you're spot on. On, on, the, on the, the first day of the Grand Prix, there was always a photographic session because it's the first race of the year. So all the international photographers want shots of the drivers in this year's uniforms. So right at the, uh, the pit entrance, there was a wall down there where each of the drivers used to go down and pose for the obligatory small amount of time to be uh, uh, full face, half face, half face, and then walk off again. And it was an ideal opportunity before the racing had started anyway, but they're in the, in the suits to be able to walk in and get the obligatory two questions. Now, as you know, Nunes, there's an unwritten rule that when you do a doorstop with a, with a driver, it's definitely a two-question doorstop only. Go for the third doorstop, the third question, and they'll all walk off on you. So you've got to get it in two questions, and if you can get it in one, all the better. I mean, that's the technique, as you know. Uh, so some of them were really good. You know, I mean, Sebastian Vettel, the young guy in the day, would walk, would, would run up to you with his tail wagging like an eager puppy because he so much wanted to be interviewed by everyone and tell everyone how, how happy he was to be here. But then you'd get the Michael Schumachers of this world who even then would say very politely, Michael was wonderful, he was a nice, polite human being, in a beautiful, cultured English voice when he had his English voice on. He would say, look, Right now is not particularly convenient. I wonder if we could perhaps reconvene this in my garage in maybe half an hour time. And you knew absolutely he was lying. <laughs> you knew there would never be half an hour from now because as soon as you do that, you had to go through the PRs, you had to set up the interview, you had to have done it three weeks in advance, you knew it was never going to happen. So with Michael, there was always this looking in each other's eyes and I'm calling him and he's we're seeing whether he's got me bluffed. And ultimately, he'd wear a question. Two with Michael was one too many. And at least he'd, I'd say, look, it's for your crowd. It's for the people out there. Come on, we're live. Let's go. Bang. Do it. Meantime, Kimmy Rockin'. <laughs> this guy made it his life's work not to answer questions, not to be approached, not to have a chat. That was not what Kimmy was about. So he's walking away, walking up pit lane from the, the photographic session, and, you know, the year before, he sort of copped it and he's kind of done a walk and talk. This time I'm walking up and I've thrown the microphone in his mouth. It's not like, you know, the, the doorstop you see outside the courts of, of Melbourne. It's not the, 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 the journalist walking along in the hope that the, 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 the accused will say something. It is a de- genuine question like, Kimmy, what's the Ferrari going to be like? What's your strategy? Yeah, throw him a decent question. Hope you get a decent answer. Um, and I threw him a question, I forget what it was, and he's gone, bang, and got me straight in the ribs. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a serious assault. 
I mean, I, I could have gone, stop right now, call the police, it's all over. Instead of that, I thought, right, if that's the way it's going to be. So I've gone ruck forward and I've started to go back at him. And I'm walking up there and we're both going, you know, with the elbows into each other. I've got the right arm out over with the microphone and, and his right arm and my left arm are kind of meeting in the middle and, and jostling each other for a while until I finally got an answer from him before he then walked off. And I've got to say that's the last time I've ever spoken to Kimmy Rockin. I've never seen him again, but, but it, was, it, was, it, it was at the time uh, a bit of fun. And I think he had as much fun as I did. But, yeah, look, the joy of it was that it wasn't live television. We weren't making television for Australia and the world. In that instance, we were making television for Albert Park. And to a degree, you can do things that professionally you wouldn't do if it were a, a broadcast live to air. Mm. In those circumstances, you can sort of get a, away with a, with a bit of stuff that you otherwise wouldn't have done. Well, I, I guess that you didn't you didn't do what Larko did. One year we got Larko involved on the GPTV stuff and he went somewhere where he shouldn't with his pass and was yanked off the grid mid-question on camera because he went to the wrong part of the grid with the wrong pass and they kicked him off. So, um, you know, it, it was a bit like uh, it was a Kimmy uh, hip and shoulder, but uh, just one that came from the, the head of the FIA communications department. Well, well, can I say that I always made a point of making sure that I had the right accreditation. Uh, and I was very fortunate that I'd known a few of the people from the years that I'd kind of been doing motor racing overseas, you know, and, and they kindly equipped me with the red pass uh, for Australia only, obviously, uh, but they equipped me with the red pass, which gave me access to all areas. Uh, and I, I think when it was my turn to move on and other people came into that role, uh, that kind of slipped away a little bit. I'm not saying because of me, I'm just simply saying perhaps I forgot to tell people, you need the red pass. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, it, it was available, I think, if, uh, if you knew the right person at the right time. And certainly I got that pass when I was doing uh, the similar sort of stuff in other, in other parts of the world as well. I wanted to talk about a bit of that too, Matt, because obviously the book is the reason why we're, we're getting together, but we've always been wanting to get you on the podcast, irrespective of, of the fact that there's a new book out that you've been up to. But I know a lot of our listeners will know you from over the years, from your television work. There's been a long career um, in print. Uh, just give us the quick snapshot of, where did your love of motorsport, motoring and media, where did this intersection come together and is there someone fully responsible for it? A couple of people fully responsible. Uh, but firstly, uh, I'm a third-generation automotive man. Uh, my dad and his stepfather were both sensational on the tools and I was the failure of the family because any time I touch a spanner, all I do is bark my knuckles. Uh, so if you can't do it, write about it. <laughs> so that's how that came about. Um, I, uh, from a very young age, I just loved automotive because my, my family was into it. My, my grandfather was actually a riding mechanic at the old Olympia Speedway at, uh, at uh, uh, Sydney uh, uh, Maroubra Speedway back in the 1920s, for goodness sake, like 90 years ago. Um, so... Uh, there was a bit of family history there. 
in terms of getting into motorsport, uh, my dad went on a corporate, probably the first corporate was ever held in Australia. He was the general manager of a Holden dealership and the local tyre dealer invited him to go to Bathurst in 1960. 1968, uh, And uh, I went along as the kid, the, the corporate involved eating uh, chicken sandwiches out of the boot of the Holden, by the way. Um, but we met Jack Rabbin because that was the, the race meeting where Jack uh, had just won his second world championship and the ARDC threw on a special race meeting for him to win up there. So the first racing driver I ever met was uh, Sir Jack. Uh, and that kind of piqued my interest ever so slightly. Uh, so my hero was a guy called David Mackay, the Australian, first Australian touring car champion. He used to write for the Sunday Telegraph. Uh, and I was out at the front fence waiting for the, for the telly to come over the, over the front fence on a Sunday to rip it open and read David's behind the wheel column. And I wrote to him at age 13 and told him I was a huge enthusiast. He sent me back an autographed photograph of himself. And, and that, that kind of got me even more interested. And then purely by coincidence, as my local newspaper, I was in a country town in New South Wales, my local newspaper asked, asked me whether I'd write motoring for them. I was 14 at the time. And I'd always enjoyed writing. I mean, that was what I did at school. I was good at English. And uh, so I ended up as a, as a, as a journal on my, my country newspaper, which led me to a cadetship on the Daily Telegraph, which coincidentally was where David Mackay was, which <laughs> you can see how the ball started to roll. And then my other hero, David McNichol, who was the editor-in-chief of the Sunday and Daily Telegraph, realised I had an interest and he sort of, manoeuvred Mackay and myself together. So I went along to the Surface Paradise Speed Week, for example, to be able to write David's columns for him and, and, and do news pieces because David was too busy racing his Scuderia Valache stuff. And so I ended up doing all of that. And then I ended up going on the London to Sydney Marathon in 1968 as a journalist, travelling with David McNichol, covering David Mackay in the works holdings. Now, it all clicks together. It all, it clicks. all clicks together, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and I, look, I look back on it now and I think to myself, a lot of ground was covered very young in my life and I wondered why I wasted the rest of it, to be honest, because it was, I mean, truthfully, you don't realise until it's happened and you look back on it, you think, boy, I was absolutely blessed that it all came together and none of it probably through my own making. It all was just kismet and it all rolled into each other. And, I mean, Evan Green, you've heard of the great Evan Green, of mm. course, who, you know, uh, pretty much gifted me the ex-Timo Mackinnon Mini Cooper S from 1967 Bathurst, you know, sold it to me for a peppercorn. I thought he'd sold it to me for a peppercorn because of my extraordinary driving ability, not realising that I actually had by that stage, command of severely important column inches in a daily newspaper, <laughs> which, which may have, you know, which, which, which may have tipped the scale somewhat in terms of we've got the, the Mackin and Cooper. Um, so I raced that for a while on behalf of British Leyland. You know, and like any young journalist, as I, as I said, I thought I was a genius when, in fact, all I was was a purveyor of column inches. Um, but, uh, but then I started a business with Evan later in life called the project group, which became my life's work, which gave me the opportunity to run two parallel paths, one in 
the automotive industry, which I dearly love, and one in the motorsport industry, which I dearly love as well. So for the rest of my life, I got to do the things that I love doing and be well paid for doing them. Not bad, huh? It's a pretty good formula, mate. I like it. I yeah. like it. Where, where did you get television? It wasn't a formula, man. It, it, just, no. it just happened. Yeah, I, I can. I've certainly not been rolling on this journey as as long as you have or achieved what you have. But I've found exactly the same thing. No plan, just have a go, and you never know who you meet along the way. What doors open, what pathways follow that you didn't see beforehand. You just never know where you might end up, or, or what you might do, or who you might do it with. That's just the nature of how a lot of these things play out. I was perhaps a little more calculated than that. I kind of, I kind of had a plan because the business grew to being quite quite a, a serious uh, operation, uh, employing quite a few people. And, and I had to be quite businesslike about it. In fact, that's probably when I, I started not to like it um, mm. because, because all of a sudden I was finding it difficult to leave my desk and I was no longer the hands-on bloke on the road. I was no longer you doing these interviews. And uh, that's kind of when... I started to reassess what was really important to me. I mean, I had a family, I had obligations, I had obligations to staff. Uh, but you've got to be true to yourself as well, you know, which is why motorsport created the relief valve for me. Whilst I was doing some very serious stuff over in the automotive space, I was also able to release that cooker, uh, pressure cooker a bit by, uh, by being able to to go and ask ridiculous questions of Kimi Räikkönen on the weekends. <laughs> I thought the question was pretty good. It was more the response from him that wasn't so flash. <laughs> yeah. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. Mate, where did the uh, so many of our listeners um, and our readers of our website love the ABC TV era? Yourself and... And Willie Hagen and a young Crompton and Drew Morford and all sorts of people involved along the journey. But you and Will are the two that everyone um, hubs to. Where did the TV stuff start for you? I was working for Packer Press, for who owned the Daily Telegraph at the time. And Sir Frank called me into his office one day. I mean, they were a family organisation. And if they liked you, they, they treated you like, you know, you were family up to the time you did them wrong, in which case it became more godfather-like. But... Uh, <laughs> They, he asked me what I wanted to do next. And I said I wanted to go to Vietnam working for him. He said, no, I don't think so, the war was on. And uh, he said, don't think so. How would you like to have a crack at television? And I said, you beauty. And he sent me across to Channel 9, uh, still in the early enough days that the news director there was a guy called Mike Ramsden, who was the second man on television in Australia. And I, I learned a lot about the craft from, uh, from Michael Ramsden and the Head of sport there was a guy called Ron Casey. Not the Ron Casey you guys had in Melbourne, but Ronald Arthur Casey in Sydney, who was famous for punching out Normie Rowe on yes. daytime television, if you recall. Yes. Um, and, uh, and Case had a, a, a weekend program called World of Sport. It was so long ago it wasn't wide World of Sport. It was simply World of Sport, much smaller in 
circus. And uh, he had a motor racing segment. Uh, the Speedway guy was a guy called Mike Raymond. <laughs> and the, uh, and the, the, the legitimate track guy was me. So Casey, every Sunday, would build this incredible false antagonism between Speedway grubs and the good chaps who went racing at Warwick Farm. Uh, and, and so that's where my motor racing thing, uh, my, my television start came. And then Channel 9 ended up doing a fair bit of OB work for at Oran Park with the old Toby Lee series. And Casey took on the role of being the producer. Let me tell you this story. Casey took on the role of being producer. I'm the boy, the boy interviewer down on the grid. Peter Brock sitting on pole position, Alan Moffat sitting alongside him. Two minutes to go, I'm supposed to walk in, ask a question of Brock, then walk across, ask a question of Moffat and clear the grid by the one-minute board. Casey comes on the cans and said, no, I want to build drama. Don't start until the one-minute board comes out. Oh, yeah, okay. But Casey's my boss, you know. Am I going to say no? So one-minute board comes out. I walk into Brock and I say, and Casey gives me the question. He said, never mind your serious questions. Who's going to lead in the first corner? Just get a grab. So I walked into Brock and I said, who's going to lead in the first corner? He sort of looks at me quizzically because the one-minute board's gone out and everyone's leaving. And he gives me an answer. And then I have, and Casey says, now Moffat. It's now 30 seconds. I walk around to Moffat. I put the, the microphone to his ear. I don't even have to ask the question. Mike Moffat looks at the microphone, looks up at me with full Moffat disdain and says, F off. <laughs> Very loudly, he uses the F word on 1970s television. And then I lift the grid. By then, of course, they'd abandoned the start and they had to restart the whole thing again because I'd stuffed up the whole procedure. Um, but Casey next morning had to answer not only to Channel 9 but to the Broadcasting Control Board for having, <laughs> for having put Moffat into that position. So that was kind of my baptism of television. <laughs> That's sensational. What a great yarn. Uh, yeah. What flow, where, is it because the ABC ended up with so much motor racing that it was logical that you ended up there? Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty much. Uh, uh, it happened through motorcycling, actually. Uh, Castrol 6 Out was mm. the genesis of my involvement with the ABC. Uh, the Castrol 6 Out started out as a Channel 7 property, uh, but after the first year, Channel 1 year only, Channel 7 decided they couldn't make money out of it and the cost of uh, staging the broadcast wasn't matched by either the audience or the, uh, uh, or, or the recompense, the advertising revenue, so it had to go somewhere else. Uh, I helped uh, Castrol place it with the ABC uh, simply because by then I was working in commercial activity and uh, the ABC asked me whether I'd go along and uh, they already had uh, Willie working with them so between Willie and myself, we became a bit of a bit of a, a, a team for a while, um, and then that led to uh, Swan Insurance Motorcycle Series, which was a blast, and then uh, to a few years of the Australian Touring Car Championship before my antagonistic mate Mike Raymond turned up and decided he wanted to take it all and build his own empire again at Channel 7, which is why... Uh, the Touring Car Championship moved back to Channel 7 from the ABC. But I have to say that people like Castrol were 
the people who made motor racing what it is today because they invested heavily, illegally potentially, in the ABC broadcast back then because the ABC was not allowed to accept commercial uh, 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 investment at all, but through various back doors, Castrol made it possible, Castrol and others, but largely Castrol, made it possible for the ABC to make some sort of economic sense out of doing motor racing in those early days. Willie and I really enjoyed doing them, I have to say. Both of us were a bit bereft when Mike Raymond decided that he'd rather take the kid, uh, Neil Crompton, than either of us to take to take the Touring Car Championship forward. But I understood where he was, you know, in, in hindsight, I understood exactly where he was coming from because he had to, to build a whole new stick. It couldn't be simply ABC revisited on Channel 7. It had to be something quite different. And, and Mike was, an, was the acknowledged master of, of, of making good motorsport back in those days. Which we've seen a lot of that happen anyway before and since when rights change, the people change. It's kind of just the unwritten rule, really, that no one likes to pick up the rights to a sport and just transplant everyone that was doing it beforehand. But I always got the impression from watching those races and a lot of those telecasts over the years, you, and then having worked with you a bit later at the Grand Prix and the, the big screens and stuff, you love the nitty-gritty, mate. Now I know why you wanted to go to Vietnam. You love being in literally the motor racing trenches, on the grid, in the pits, getting the chat. You could do the commentary in the box, but... You love the lane. You could just see it. That's That was yeah. your thing. That's your thing. Thank, thank you. I, I was always uncomfortable. Not uncomfortable. I, I, was, I was never totally happy with commentary because I've never seen myself as, as a pontificator. Uh, I, that, that, that sounds like I'm bagging the current guys. Uh, I've never seen myself as an analyst either. I mean, I'm a news journal. That's what I've always been. I'm tabloid. You know, Give, give me a story to rip into and do it in two questions or less, and that's, that's kind of what I enjoy. So for me, the lanes were what it was all about. Uh, it didn't mean you couldn't do it without a, a, a modicum of, uh, of discretion. You know, you, you, weren't, you weren't the attack dog, you know, the, 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 the foot, in, foot in the door, you know, uh, tabloid journal. But, but you, I, was, I was permitted I always found it a great privilege that I could walk up to a, a Peter Brocker or Dick Johnson or you know, an Alan Moffat and, and they would actually pay me the courtesy of giving me an answer to my question. Uh, that may sound strange but because they're there to do it. But, but for me it was, it was always a great privilege to, to, to be in that circumstance and, and I'm, I'm very grateful to them for sometimes because, again, you see, one of my trainings was there's no such thing as a silly question, only only a silly answer. So you could walk in there and you'd make a goose of yourself occasionally uh, by by asking the what seemed to be the dopey question, but it was it was designed to get the right answer, um, and it didn't matter if you if you if you made yourself look some somewhat of, of an idiot as long as you got the answer you were looking for because it was all about them. It wasn't about me. Mm. Uh, at least that's what I now claim. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I tell you, we could we could go forever and ever, but um, the book's a ripper. It's Formula One, 
the Australian and New Zealand story. Uh, it's out now. You can order it from our online bookshop. We'll put the link in the show notes so people can click and find it easily enough. Uh, we At the start of this pod, mate, we ran through the books that you've done. What's next? Is this the end? Have you got something planned? What's cooking for the years ahead? Now I've got to shoot you. Um, <laughs> we won't tell anyone. <laughs> I am being encouraged to write fiction. There are people who would say I've been writing that for a lot of years. <laughs> but but, but I, I've enjoyed writing these five, this, this body of work, these five books. When, when I, my, my business folded into a, another company and I was kept on as a consultant, people said, now's the time to write your memoirs. I couldn't possibly write in the first person. There's no way in the wide world I could, I could write my memoirs because I'd just be uncomfortable doing it. So these five books that I've written for Alan and Unwin are indeed my memoirs because they're my live eye view of what happened, whether it was the London to Sydney Marathon or whether it's 24 Australians and New Zealanders driving Formula One cars. I've enjoyed doing that no end. What to do next? I've come across a couple of motor racing legends who leave themselves wide open to uh, a fact-based fictional story. And I'm, and I'm kind of working down that path at the moment, putting a plot together that, that could work quite nicely. And uh, if it comes off, I mean, my biggest problem is I don't think I'm good enough to write it. And I've still got, I'm, still, I'm still trying to pump myself up to the point that I can actually write dialogue. Because I'm right, I'm used to writing other people's quotes. I'm not used to inventing dialogue and writing it myself. Although, as I say, some people think I do. <laughs> but but ultimately, that's that's where I'm going next, mate. So yeah, watch the space next year to see whether I've been successful. We look forward to it. Two quick ones that have popped into my brain before we shoot. We love our memorabilia here at this podcast and at VH Sleuth. We love old stuff. Our good mates at the motorsporttrader.com deal in all this stuff, whether it's panels or it's all sorts of things. Uh, I'd tell our listeners to go to their website to check some of the stuff out. In the John Smales private collection, what's your most cherished piece of motorsport memorabilia? Oh, man. Okay. (laughs) A lapel badge from the 1968 London to Sydney Marathon, which is attached to the original Dunlop jacket, but not, there were two Dunlop jackets. There was one that was very exclusive and one that was everybody's. So I've got the exclusive one. So, so that's pretty cherished. Um, there's a trophy from the only time I won an open wheeler race, which, <laughs> which was a Formula V race, I have to say quickly, a Formula V race, which was crushed to pieces in, in a box for many years and it came out only a couple of years ago, sits, sits on my mantelpiece, kind of a gnarled version of an AARC trophy from a club race meeting. That's pretty cool because at least I can claim that I, I could do it from that side of the fence as well. So I, I guess those two things are... Uh, uh, the, the two things that, that come to mind, if you look over my shoulder, since we are, you and I, on Zoom, you'll see a, an autographed photograph of Phil Hill in the Shark Nose Ferrari of 1961. That's pretty cherished as well, I have to say. I've not been one for, for, for saving a lot of things. I've always figured the next, the next life is the way to go. Um, so those two things, I think probably those three things are probably the go. Uh, very um, cool, mate. Very cool. Yeah. 
David Mackay's first book, Behind the Wheel, where he uh, he's autographed it to me. That's pretty special as well because David was a hero. So, yeah, that's a few. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Love it. Love it. Before we go to, we cannot do this podcast without you dropping a clanger story about our friend Neil Crompton. Can you bury Crompton in one story? Strange you should mention that, and this hasn't been rehearsed, has it? <laughs> I was fortunate in the day to be in at the, the start of the careers of two young people who've gone on to immense opportunities. One was Lee Diffy and the other was Neil Crompton. Both were introduced to me as this is a young guy who's got some possibility in the sport. Why, why don't you, uh, you let him sit alongside you and see what you think? You know? So Crompton was introduced to me by... They were both introduced to me by the same bloke, actually, a guy called David Wood, who was director of sport at uh, ABC for many years. And uh, Crompton came up from, uh, from his bike shop, Navajo Bikes, um, and uh, was without transport to get back to Sydney, in fact, without accommodation that night. So I said, between practice and the race, so I said, stay at my place. And uh, I took him through the back roads of Asheville in Sydney on the way back. And I guess it's not a clanger story about Crompton, but it is a story about uh, his steadfast uh, desire to always remain very much on the right side of legality. Yes. Uh, you know, Crompton will never, will never put himself in a circumstance of risk. I drove him through the back streets of, of Asheville at what was at the time my normal pace. Uh, and there was a degree of whimpering from the passenger seat as I went through. Uh, and I, 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 to, to this day, I kind of regret doing it. It was just the way I drove at the time, which was stupid. Uh, but uh, uh, it kind of it kind of didn't give him a good impression of uh, of what Will and I were all about because I, I didn't say Will was Will was locked in behind me in his car as well. So we were both doing warp speed through the back wheels of Asheville. Um, so that's about as as uh, as clanger a story I can give you on Crompton. If you'd like a story on Diffie, be my guest. Nineteen ninety nine, we're with yours and my good friend Tim Jardine at the Le Mans twenty four hour race. We're doing an as live coverage for a one hour documentary, which would go to air in Australia later. Diffie and I had done. NASCAR and Oscar together at uh, Bob Jones Thunderdome. Uh, so we, we knew each other reasonably well and I was in awe of different. I thought he was just a, uh, a genius, the, the, the best, most natural commentator ever in the history. And uh, we were standing on the grid doing this piece to air, but it had to be done as live, even though it was a pre-record, because we only get one chance of the guy coming over the, the ramp. Diffie did it. Absolutely perfectly. I did my part okay. And I turned to Diffie at the end of it. We were both elated by the fact that uh, we'd pulled it off because the chances of us doing it were fairly slim. I turned to him and said, what in goodness name are you doing going back to Australia? Young bloke like you, you should stay over here and forge your career in the world. And I thought it was just a throwaway line. He came back to Australia, saw David White, the head of sport of Channel 10, and resigned. On the basis of the encouragement I'd given him. Uh, and he, to this day, he says that I was the catalyst who got him 
to uh, to go to Europe and ultimately to the States. Uh, I kind of disagree. I think he was going to go anyway, but he blames me. And, of course, therefore, Whitey blames me and has always blamed me for, for actually showing Diffie that there was a, a bigger world than Australia. So that's my Diffie story. And my, my Crompton story, I'll give, it a, I'll give it some more thought and come back to you because I'm sure there are more Cromley stories to be told. Well, there's probably a second book to be written, but I'm, it was hard enough to do the first one with him. So let's wait for the second one for down the track somewhere and we'll probably get everybody else to tell the stories. Can I, can I just say congratulations on that book, by the way? Uh, I've known Neil right from the outset. In fact, when he was in charge of his pushbike shop uh, in country Victoria, he actually sold me my son's first Redline BMX bike. Oh, really? And, yeah, and had it shipped to Sydney because I wanted to get the Andrew, my son, I wanted to get him the very best uh, BMX bike there was. So I, I rang Cromley and said, what do you reckon? He said, this red line straight from the States, I'll ship. Cromley shipped it as only Cromley could. It came in with bubble wrap on its bubble wrap, you know, and arrived in time for Christmas for Andrew. So, you know, I've known Cromley since way back then. But until I read your book, I was really on the side of Crompton, the commentator, because I reckon him hugely highly. And I always thought that he was, how do I put this politely, a better commentator than he was a race driver. That was my view. Reading your book, I've kind of changed my mind. It's put Neil in quite a different perspective for me than I've ever had. And I, I thank you for it because I now see what a serious racer he was as well. And when the aforesaid David White kept coming at me and saying, how are we going to talk him out of race cars and get him into the commentary box? And I was kind of part of the push that was helping him to see the light and become a commentator. Um, I didn't realise quite the level of commitment and the level of talent that existed there. So well done on that book. You've, you've, really, you've really married the two together and put Neil in a perspective that I don't think many people have seen before. Well done. Oh, thank you, mate. Ch- chuffed at your, your comments. I mean, it's Neil's book. It's Neil's words. I just helped him a little bit and guided him on the way because he always says he's a bad writer, which I think is totally rubbish. But I'm, I'm really interested because I think he will be chuffed to hear something like that because he sees himself as a racer first, a broadcaster second. A lot of other people would see it the other way around. So someone who's been around the game so long who may, and that's probably wasn't something we even thought of when we're setting out to do this book, that it might change people's viewpoints and the order of which they, they see him as a, a broadcaster or, or a driver. So I'm, I'm chuffed to hear that, mate, and I know he would be chuffed as well. So thank you for the, for the kind words. But to you, mate, stunning job. Formula One, the Australian and New Zealand story. It's out now through the V8 Sleuth Online Bookshop. It's a cracker. It's the perfect Christmas present if you're struggling to find something for someone who's a bit hard to buy for, dad or an uncle or a brother or a son or, you know, anyone who and anyone who loves their motor racing or their Formula One or loves a good book, this is this is definitely one of those. So, John, thank you for the chat, mate. Love going down memory lane. We look forward to seeing what you cook up for next year we'll uh we'll touch base with you next year and see if you are successful or or come up with some other idea for whatever is next for you in whatever you write next well done and and thanks again for your amazing contribution not just to these these books in more recent times but your body of work it's amazing thanks aaron really appreciate it and thank you very much for your support mate well done 
John Smiles there. Wasn't he in great form? Some fantastic stories and great insight into not just the new book, but also his amazing time in the industry. The Kimi Raikkonen story is still my favourite of this year so far. John's new book, it's Formula One, the Australian and New Zealand story. It can be purchased now from our online bookshop, the website, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. And we've also got a range of his earlier books, the Alan Moffat autobiography and Mount Panorama. That book's a cracker with some untold stories about Bathurst from over the years. You can buy all those and plenty, plenty more from our online bookshop, the perfect place to shop for the motorsport fan for Christmas. Also, Repco Bathurst 1000 official program has just arrived this week. We have it in stock. If you're not going to the race or if you want to get it before you go to the race, uh, jump at jump jump is what I'm trying to say on the online bookshop and order your copy now uh, tomorrow Thursday Castrol Motorsport News Podcast is back Andrew Van Leeuwen and Stephen Bartholomew looking at all the news of a big week of world and national motorsport uh, Formula 1 NASCAR supercars MotoGP there is plenty to unpack it's a new pod from the last few weeks it's going to press on through the rest of this year and into next year subscribe so you don't miss an episode with all the news views insight and analysis you can also subscribe to our newsletter here at V8 Sleuth head to the website v8sleuth.com.au you won't miss a thing we put out a couple of week we don't drown your email box too much uh, but we point you to the stories that are on our website some items in our shop some announcements and various bits and pieces it's a great way to keep in touch with us and of course the socials too Facebook, uh, Twitter and Instagram are the places to keep in touch with us anyway that's it that's us we're done uh, another episode next week on the VH Sleuth podcast powered by Repco next Wednesday uh, I have scheduled a chat with a Bathurst team winning owner and you have to guess who it might be we did do a call out for questions a little while ago for this fellow had to reschedule a couple of times but we've got another date and time locked in next week on the pod great storyteller let's just say doesn't mind a dress up we'll have that chat for you next week thanks for listening thanks for subscribing and thanks for all the feedback that we get from you we will chat to you next week on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco The things these streets have seen, like legends, half man, half machine, who head up north to go down in history. But here in the Ville, nothing comes for free, because here, there's no should. These streets reveal what's really under the hood. If these streets could talk, they wouldn't. They'd roar. They've seen the unforgettable, and they just want more. NTI Townsville 500. Book now at Ticketek. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au.